Okay, if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll look at verses 1 to 24. First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there's scripture on the screen as well, so you can follow along. Now read for us from the CSB. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we turn to you in expectation uh, that you will illuminate this word to us, God. We turn to you wanting to hear from you about a great many things that perhaps we don't talk about very often because we know that you are a God of answers and we know, Lord, that you know all things. You know when we sit down and when we lie down, you know when we rise up. And so we ask, Lord, 
that you would help us to order our desires together, that you would help us, Lord, to even understand the desires that we don't know about ourselves, that you would help us, Lord, to see where our hearts are leading and what our true gods are. In this, Lord, would you help us to repent, to turn to you, and to live a new life glorifying you with our bodies. We desperately want to know what it means to do your will here on this earth. We want to know practically what it means to live holy lives, to live sanctified, and to continue to grow in holiness day by day. Would you guide us in this endeavor? Would you change our hearts? Help, help us to receive your word rather than our own words to ourselves or the culture around us, the friends and family that might be well-meaning but might be misinformed. May we turn to your eternal word which stands unchanged and may we know what it means to our lives today. Would you help us to love you? Would you help us to love one another? Would you help us to seek you in your word? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A bit of a link to the past week uh, of preaching. So if you were here last week or if you weren't, um, there might have been a bit of conviction about sexual immorality, um, as you heard from our praise leader, David. And it must lead to repentance, you know, but this can only happen through the grace of God, uh, who also delivers us into this new life that we have in him because Jesus has paid the cost for us to be received with open arms. And this means that if we know Jesus, that we don't stay in this immorality any longer, and we don't remain in guilt either. But instead, as we're purified, we seek out what this means to us in the redemption of the sexual immorality of our past. And so there is redemption for us. It's never too late for any of us. Glorifying God with our bodies means knowing what to do about sexuality. What does sexuality have to do with glorifying God? And why do we talk about this? Because as Christians, we want to glorify God. We talk about this each week, glorifying God in the gospel of grace. And as human beings, we have our bodies. We're born into them, we'll die with them, and so it's natural to glorify God with our bodies. Not only this, but you might know from personal experience or from people around you at New Life that this is a topic that gets a lot of interest, and yet it isn't talked about very often either. You know, you might not hear it from the pulpit very often, you might not even hear it amongst your peer groups, but the types of people that Paul was writing to in Corinth aren't so different to the types of people that are sitting near you here at New Life today. People who generally want to get married, people who want to have sex, people who want to have families. These are the people that populate our seats here at New Life, and these are the people that were in Corinth as well. But the way it happens quite often in churches is that people don't know how to talk about sex, and so it becomes a taboo topic that's just not talked about. It's alarming the number of premarital counseling sessions that I get into, or even just marital counseling sessions, where people don't really know how to communicate about sex. And this might be where you're at today as well. And look, sex and relationships aren't everything. Let me just underline that point already. But there are a lot of what people think about. And if at church we're silent on this issue because we don't know what the Bible says, then where are people gonna turn for their information, for their discipleship, for their wisdom? So what does the Bible actually say about this topic? 
So like last week, the beginning of this passage has Paul quoting the Corinthian church and what they're saying about this before responding back to them. Okay, so it says this, the Corinthians were saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And Paul was responding back, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. Now this probably bears a little bit of explanation, because this sounds like you know, the most obvious vanilla advice that you would give to someone, right? This is kind of like the secrets to married life, except it's not really that much of a secret. So why is this something that Paul has to even tell the Corinthian church? So most people, most scholars believe that some of the Corinthian Christians were saying, it's good for a man to not have any sexual relations at all with a woman. Okay, this isn't like a homosexuality kind of thing, but this is basically saying it's good for a man just not to pursue any sort of sexual relations. Telling the people to be celibate even in marriage. Like, imagine that on your wedding day. Telling people to be celibate even in marriage, to divorce their unbelieving partners, to remain single if you're not already married, basically giving new rules for how to do this life. Saying sin saying sex was a sin and that celibacy should be the norm. Like, imagine if our vision statement was glorifying God in the gospel of celibacy. A lot of you guys would not come to church any longer. But why? Why was this happening in this church? Why was this happening in this time? At this time in Rome, there were two very common views on sex. Both believed that sex in marriage should be constrained to just when you're trying for a baby, just when you want to have a child. One view believed that pleasure should be found, though, in sex outside of marriage. So even if you were married, that if you wanted pleasure, it was wrong to pollute your spouse with this kind of desire, and you should pursue it with prostitutes, slaves, or anyone else outside of marriage. And then the opposing view was pleasure should not be pursued at all. So two very opposite views were the main viewpoints in the city of Corinth. And as we've seen throughout this series, and especially last week, the Corinthian church has really drunk from the culture of the day around them, allowing it to disciple them, rather than seeking out to know what God has to say. Let's look at what the Bible says together, okay? Paul agrees as far as saying sex should only be in married life. I think most of us agree with this, when we read the Bible. But look at the language he uses there. It's the marital duty that husbands and wives have towards one another. It's a duty. It's about sensitivity and serving one another in the partner's sexual needs and enjoying one another as well. Now the Corinthians are the blind leading the blind here. As a reaction to the sexual immorality that we've seen in the past few weeks, they ran completely in the opposite direction, some of these guys, and said, it's good to just not have sex at all for the sake of pleasure. And this kind of pendulum swing happens all the time in our culture, in all of humanity. You know, older members of our church, if you guys were around in the 90s, 2000s, and so on, you might remember the different movements that have swept through the church over the decades. Some of you guys might be living through it now, like the kissing, dating, goodbye movement, 
that happened where legalistically people saw dating as evil, as an extension of sex. Or maybe the free love movements that sandwiched this movement, where it was all about some warped sense of Christian freedom. So you can just do whatever you want with whomever you want. Why is there so much polarization in society? And we've talked about this a few times before. We've talked about this especially in, in the Goodbye 2021 series. Because it's easier to just go in the opposite direction, the extreme of whatever we disagree with, whatever we think is wrong, instead of listening and communicating, instead of lovingly compromising. Paul understands, even as a celibate man, that sex that's only engaged for the sake of having kids opens up the couple to temptation. And besides, when has a relationship that's only about results ever ended well? If it's not about intimacy, if it's not about love, then surely it'll fall apart. Paul doesn't even talk about trying for kids here. Now, this is very against societal norms in, this, in Corinthian society. Instead, he goes against this by saying, marriage, this should be recontextualized. It should be about mutually satisfying one another's desires. Married men and women must have sex with one another in order to satisfy, satisfy each other's needs. Even the way he describes this really drives the point home for the Corinthians and to us as well. Read with me verses four to five. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, there's this language of submission and of ownership and debt and even keeping what's rightfully someone else's to yourself. All of this speaks to duty, to obligation, to give love rather than demanding love from one another. But why is this? Why giving and why not demanding? You might have noticed that in the opening verse of our passage, the Corinthians are quoted talking about a man having sex with a woman. You know, it's directly in the context of speaking to a man. The focus is on the man in this society, and perhaps you've seen this in recent times in our culture as well, you know, whether it's in you know, the Me Too movements of uh, recent years, or even in the way that sometimes well-meaning people will talk about porn like it's a purely male issue. No, this isn't the case. In this time, though, it was a man's world. At this time, a husband had absolute authority over almost all of the members of his household. Whatever he said went. That might mean his wife, his children, his slaves, whoever resides in his household. And in this way, it was understood in society, the husband could sexually exploit whoever he wanted in his household as well. Whether it's his wife, whether it's his slaves or whoever. And it was a matter of stamping his authority onto his property. But you see Paul here. He focuses on both men and women in this passage because Jesus has a great focus on both men and women. Made in the image of God, male and female, God created them. Husbands and wives that are here today, your bodies belong to your spouse. 
What does this mean? If this statement brings up any sort of selfish thoughts in your mind, like, I gotta go home and tell my wife or my husband that your body belongs to me. Give me what's rightfully mine, okay? There might be a problem that we need to talk through, okay? But in the original context, think about this. Husbands at this time were expected to exercise their authority over virtually everyone in the house. So this is a radical restriction of the husband's sex life. This is telling the husband, no, you can't do that any longer. And at the same time, it raises the rights of the wife. It's the obligation of both to not have sex with anyone outside of their spouse. And the glorifying thing to do is to serve the spouse by providing them with sexual satisfaction. And again, if your mind goes to places of selfishness or abuse, you know, we must talk. Now, this is a radical reframing of marital relations. And there's only one other place in the Bible that talks about um, a similar idea of belonging to one another before Paul's letters. Okay, before Paul's letters, there's only one other place. It's in the Song of Solomon, where the woman says, I am my love's, and my love is mine. This is love and desire at work. This is the realm of passion and love, not being tied down like so many you see marriage, or looking to secure your next generation through children, which is what the Corinthians believe, which is what Rome believed, and which is what sometimes some in our culture believe. In the Bible, there are only two types of sex. Sex in marriage or sexual immorality. If you're not engaged in sex in marriage, that's sexual immorality. That's what the Bible tells us. Therefore, maintaining a regular sex life with your spouse is the best way to avoid sexual immorality or else it's about remaining celibate as a single. Now, how does maintaining a regular sex life with your spouse do this? In the book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller, he says that sex should always be a uniting act between husband and wife. He says there must be an opportunity to recall all that the other person means to you and to give yourself anew. Sex between a husband and a wife is a unique way to do that. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you, and you must not use sex to say anything else. If you read with me verses 5 to 6 in 1 Corinthians, it says, Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I say this as a concession, not as a command. So there's an exception that Paul mentions here. If the married couple decides together for a limited time to devote themselves to prayer, and the fact that this decision is made together means that husbands and wives should be openly talking to one another about what they desire from their sex lives not just living by expectations or by silently seething. Married couples talk to one another. It's expected. This is natural, especially since your bodies are not your own, but belong to one another. And Paul gives a time limit for this type of abstinence as well, stating that Refraining for too long might result in someone with a lack of self-control being tempted into immorality. There's no specific time given, so we have to be wise here and we shouldn't uh, speculate either, but the point stands that it's only for a little while. 
and in serious situations that require such dedication to this type of extended, fervent prayer life that a regular sex life might actually distract you. This is the only time that you refrain. All right, a lot of um, engaged couples and married couples are like, you know, super dialed into this part, but all right, singles, okay? There's many of you here, let's talk, okay? I'm sure this was all very riveting for you to look forward to, or if you're so inclined, but some of you might just have some separate questions as well. So let's talk through these, okay? Verse seven, I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. Now, some of you know what Paul's talking about here. He was celibate, okay? He was not involved, okay? This was Paul's own preference and his own lifestyle. But quite often, the Christian leader of a church has some sort of influence over the people of his church. And so it's possible that some of the Corinthians pointed out Paul's celibacy as the model that they should follow. Maybe they were telling other members of the congregation, hey, look at Paul. Look at his lifestyle. This is the way that you should live as well. Maybe some of them were just confused by Paul's lifestyle choice, but the fact that he was still saying, yes, marriage is good. Yes, in marriage, this is what you should do. Either way, this is a personal choice for Paul and not a moral command. This is not a command from Paul. He doesn't hide the fact that this is his preference, though. And even he talks later in the letter about how it helps a believer when they're serving God to be single. Some of you guys who have gotten married, had kids, know this as well. You lose brain cells a little bit when you have kids. You're staying up late all the time, okay? But even as he wishes that others were like this, this language points to the fact that this is not a rule to follow, but just what Paul prefers. Each has his own gift from God. What does it mean that the celibate and the married have each received a gift from God? It means that singles and married people are equally blessed by God. Just because you get married doesn't mean you have a greater blessing than a single person. Just because you're single doesn't mean that God hates you. Gifts from God are freely and graciously given for the building of the body of Christ. If you're single, it's for the building of the body of Christ. If you're married, it's for the building of the body of Christ. It's not just for you to be lonely. It's not just for you to be tied down or any of these things. It's all for the glory of God and for the edification of the church. Again, Keller says, single people need a Christian community. They should, live in Christ they should live in community with other singles who are neither too hungry to be married nor too fearful of it. They should be in a community with singles who don't use the world's standards, physical beauty and wealth, as a basis for making partner choices. It would additionally be important for singles to live in community with Christian families who do not make family an idol nor make singles feel superfluous. If you've been at New Life for a while, you might know that there's been a bit of a divide between families and singles. You know, whether it comes to the services that we had or whether it just comes to just hanging out together. It's kind of hard sometimes, I guess, okay? But why is there such a divide when it comes to life stages? How are we ever gonna learn and grow together unless we're able to see the way that others live? To ask questions, to live in community. I love the way that our families and our singles are becoming more and more integrated here at New Life as time goes by. I love that when the family life group started, 
that some of you guys who are not even engaged yet talk with Jay and Hannah about joining them because you wanted to know more about how they live life for Christ with family. I love that. I think that's really great that you guys are thinking about this. Talk to each other is the point. You guys exist in the same body of Christ. Don't stand off from one another. Marry couples, families, engage people, dating, singles. Talk to each other. We need each other. We need this type of Christian community here at New Life where we can talk about what the Bible has to say about sex and marriage. Or else, where are we going to turn? Why do singles need to hear it? Because it supports you as you continue in your way of life, as you pursue a holy life. It's hard for a single person to remain sexually moral here in this world. When you reflect together on the Bible with other singles and married couples, married Christians, about what the Bible has to say about this topic, it also helps to provide you with a safe community where other single people are pursuing this goal together. You don't want to be in a relationship with someone that disagrees completely about this. Now, when we talk about families here at New Life, when I talk about families, when the MDs come and talk about families, sometimes we're speaking specifically about married couples with kids, but quite often we're looking aspirationally to who we are and who we will become. A community where some singles get married and some don't. Some married couples have kids and some don't. And whatever the case, we're one family together in Christ. Verses 10 to 11. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. All right, let's talk about divorce. Historically, at this time, most marriages ended in divorce. If you can believe it, we're getting better as a society. Okay, we're like at the halfway point or whatever, right? We're 50%. So common was divorce that a marriage not ending in this way would be seen as an exception. There are some gravestones that exist that say, unlike most marriages, these guys stayed together until the end. What a lovely and romantic gesture to put on your gravestone. This is the culture that surrounded the church in Corinth. But Paul is unflinching in his command. A wife is not to leave her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul is in full agreement with the teachings of Jesus here. And that it's only in the extreme cases of adultery that divorce can be justified. Along with this, some of the Christians in Corinth were wondering whether they should divorce their unbelieving partners. Do we have to keep our unbelieving partners or should we pursue a believer instead? But Paul gives advice here. Don't divorce if you're already married. Why? Verses 12 to 14 tells us, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So why is it that divorce is not an option? Because holiness is contagious. 
You can see this throughout the Gospels in Jesus Christ, in the way that he ministers to people by touching those who are unclean. And what happens? Does he become unclean? No, the unclean are made clean. And in fact, we're the most perfect example of this. We were undeserving. We were unclean. And we were saved by Jesus Christ on the cross, touched by his love, his holiness, and made clean, made holy, made full family members of God. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Hear this passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul isn't saying that an unbelieving spouse is saved is moved into salvation from their sins by marriage. This isn't what he's talking about here. What happens here is that by the sheer virtue of the Christian wife or husband being who they are, the unbeliever will be included, will be invited. It won't be unexpected for the spouse to be home when life group shows up and says, hey, by the way, your wife said that we can meet here today. It won't be unexpected for the unbelieving spouse to be present at their child's baptism. It's just what a good person does. It won't be unexpected for the unbelieving spouse to be a part of life together with the believing spouse. This isn't telling you to go and marry an unbeliever, okay? This is going to get addressed later, but this is about those who are already married. If you're already married and you have an unbelieving spouse, or if your parents are this kind of family, have hope. It's expected that you and your church members will be testifying and providing good Christian witness to the unbelieving spouse, which they might not not normally come in contact with. Just like it's expected that a Christian's lifestyle will have some sort of effect on the unbeliever and the lifestyle of everyone that the Christian lives with. If you live with unbelievers in your household, you probably know that by the virtue of your lifestyle, they already are saturated with different things in your life. If they see you praying, if they see you being hospitable to people, how can someone not notice the prayers that are being prayed? How can someone not notice the generosity of the Christian who gives unselfishly the grace that they embody? And it's our prayer that they get changed through these things. About children, when Paul is speaking about them here, this is just like in our baptism series. It's expected that the children of Believers and unbelievers alike will be fully embraced by the community, will be taught and discipled and shaped by those around them. Bring your children along. Bring them to children's ministry. Help them to be shaped by the ministries that we offer. Now, the way that Paul concludes this section is to be content wherever you're at in life. Verses 17 to 19, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Whether married or single, circumcised or not, free or not, keeping God's commands is what matters. So keep God's commands and be content. What Paul is saying here is that you must, sorry, what Paul is not saying here is that you must remain single if you're single. That was about to be disastrous for some of you guys, right? But he's saying that all is God's gift. And you don't have to change your life stage in order to please God. 
If you're single, be content where you're at now and keep serving God. If you so desire marriage, pray for it. Talk to people about it. If you're really desperate to get married, if you're in a couple, you know, pray diligently, but don't live like you're already married. You're not there yet. Get married before you live that way. Boyfriend and girlfriend, engaged. Those don't mean married. If you're married, be content and don't seek divorce. Don't look outside of your marriage, but instead have regular sex with one another, serving the other and satisfying them. Wherever you're at, here's where Paul's at. Read this passage again throughout this week and reflect on your life stage. You can be more objective about who you are as you do this, what you desire as you read this section. Maybe you haven't been honest with yourself. But read this again this week and meditate on Christian sexual ethics as the Bible presents here. Why don't I pray for you? Father, it might feel a little bit unusual for some of us that are gathered here today to hear about this topic, to hear about the preaching on sexual relations in marriage, about singleness, about being widowed, about divorce, about all of these things. But we pray, Lord, that this can be not an unusual topic, but a topic that we're able to broach fearlessly with one another. We are family members of God together, brothers and sisters. What topic is there that we can't talk about? Who else can we turn to? We pray, Lord, that you would give us the bravery, the courage to be able to share openly about the things that we struggle with. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to celebrate joyously about the victories that we achieve in you. Truly, it is you that takes us from death to life. Truly, it is you that turns our culture inside out, that disciples us in the way that you have created us. You know the way that we're headed. And we ask, Lord, that you take us there. That you give us new life in you. That you help us, Lord, to recognize our ethic and to be able to study Christian ethic and see how it lines up together. For those of us that are convicted, would you help us to be able to confess and repent before our brothers and sisters? That you would help us, Lord, to turn to you in all repentance and to seek you that you might resurrect us in this. Thank you for the new life that we live in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.